Welcome to the Everyday Veteran Podcast. I'm your host, Pat Keplinger. And with me today, we've got Jack Floyd, U.S. Marine veteran. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it, Pat. Glad to be here. Thanks. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and and how you kind of got into the Marine Corps. Okay. So um, I grew up in the, the mountains of North Carolina. I'm a hillbilly. <laughs> Most people call me a redneck. I say, no, I'm not a redneck. I'm a hillbilly. Um, love it. Love being out in the woods. I grew up with, you know, dirt poor, you know, my mom, well, both of my parents were teachers. Um, my granddaddy was a teacher. So my mom grew up poor. My, my dad was born in a log cabin in Georgia. I mean, the whole family just came from, you know, nothing except a little bit of love and a lot of grit. So, uh, kind of, kind of grew up in the little, little bit tough walking around the woods with bobcats and, you know, taking my dog with me. So, you know, that's the, that was the one rule. If you're going in the woods, take the dog with you, you know, cause the dog's going to go get eaten and I'm going to come home. Right. So that was always the running joke, which wasn't quite funny when I was about six was the first time one of my dogs actually got eaten by, uh, actually by a mountain lion. So, <laughs> Oh no. Yeah. But as a six year old, you watched that? Uh, no, I ran. <laughs> oh, you ran. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I didn't stick around to see it, but I, I knew what was going on, you know, but, but yeah, you know, um, my dad and my mom separated when I was six. Uh, my dad went to Germany uh, to be a teacher for the military. So he lived in Heidelberg, Germany, or just outside of Heidelberg, Germany, uh, for about 20 plus years, working with the University of Maryland, teaching GIs overseas. So uh, every, I wasn't necessarily a military rat because he wasn't moving all over the place, but I spent, you know, every summer from the time I was six until I was 16 in Germany with him on military bases every day. So I was around it a lot growing up. I saw what it was like, you know, from about age 10, I had already made up my mind that I was going to be a Marine. That's all I ever wanted to do. That was my goal. That was my dream. Uh, prior to that, I wanted to go to NC State to be an engineer, mechanical engineer. And um, my dad was a psychologist and he said, you know, of course, ran me through the ringer and his tests and psyche valves and said, yep, you should be a mechanical engineer. <laughs> and I went to the Marine Corps Infantry instead. <laughs> <laughs> And it was kind of funny because I remember the day, well, not quite the day, but like two days before I shipped out, um, that was the first summer that I hadn't been to Germany to visit with him. And he came home to visit with me and say bye to me before I went to boot camp. And then he, he of course, came home from my graduation from boot camp. Uh, he actually missed my high school graduation because he couldn't come for both. And he said, which one would you rather me be at? And I said, oh, I could care less about high school. Come to Marine Corps graduation. So he did. He was right at on. my Marine Corps graduation, which is cool. Um, but it was kind of funny because he just had it in his head that I had to have a watch because, and I don't wear, I still, you know, the only time I wear a watch now is when I'm running so I can track my, my pace and see what my, you know, how many miles I've ran. And, um, he thought it was just absolute must that I had a watch. So he handed me his watch off his wrists, put it on my wrist and I still have it. Um, just a old generic, you know, $8 Timex back in 1995 with the start stop buttons and the stopwatch, you know, no other real time functions. And the first thing that happened when I got off the bus at Paris Island was they took all my things, including my dad's watch and, and didn't give it back to me until I graduated. So he had always joked about that because he was so insistent that I have a watch. So I knew what was going on, what time it was. And then, the, you know, of course they take everything from you, but um, but yeah, I always, that was just kind of it. I always wanted to be a Marine. I, I went through ROTC in school and, um, uh, to get, you know, promoted to E2, uh, 
right out right off the bat because that was one of the deals. If you had two or three years of ROTC, then you could get promoted um, day one from joining. Uh, and it kind of went from there. I mean, had great friends, great family. You know, I grew up, uh, like I said, poor, but I had a wonderful childhood, no real issues. Yeah, parents were divorced, but I mean, I have a great relationship with my mom still today. I had a great relationship with my dad before he passed away almost nine years ago now. And, um, you know, no complaints. And I was accepted into colleges. My mom made me stay, you know, toe the line, get A, straight A's and, you know, be ready to go to college just in case you change your mind. And when the day came and the recruiter, I walked in the recruiter's office when I was actually 17, the day I turned 17 years old because that was the earliest I could go sign up. And I said, there's just one thing I told him. I said, walked in, I said, I want 03 Bravo, which is two years security forces, two years infantry. And I'm, I'm ready to go as soon as you can send me. He goes, what's the catch? I said, you have to convince my mom because I'm only 17. And he was like, cool, <laughs> let's go. And he literally, when uh, Sergeant Jeffers, I'll never forget, he was a great big giant man, redheaded, temper from, you know, just hothead redhead, right? And he sat at my kitchen table with my mom for two and a half hours while she grilled him and asked every question she could think of trying to get him to leave. <laughs> and after he, he was literally had his, had his hand, had his head in his hands like this sitting on the kitchen table. She looked at me and said, is this really what you want to do? I said, yes, ma'am. And she signed the paper. So off I went. <laughs> How long after that did you ship? I had to wait a year. Well, not quite a year. I had to wait about eight months uh, because eight months. nine months, something like that, because I was still, I hadn't even graduated high school yet. I was, that was between my summer, between my junior and senior year. Uh, I signed in the, the late entry program. And then I got on a plane and went to Germany and Sergeant Jeffers had a fit because I wasn't there running with him in the delayed entry program and helping him recruit <laughs> over the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's been a year in the delayed, delayed entry um, didn't really have any involvement with recruiters, um, which is funny because I always, I always shunned away from okay, let's go, you know, try to recruit people or try to be a salesman, and I ended up going into sales after I got out of the Marine Corps anyway. <laughs> so, uh, if you haven't noticed, I have no problem talking. So, that, <laughs> they taught you. It, well. it turns out that that was a good fit for me, <laughs> being in the sales world. Oh, that's awesome. You said so. You said that you wanted to be a Marine since you were ten years old. What was it about the Marine Corps that that drew you in? Your dad worked with the Army, but what was it about the Marine Corps? Um, I just second best was never good enough. You know, losing was never an option. If I was, I was extremely competitive. Um, you know, to the to the point of a hazard. Uh, you know, there's there was always I was always the smallest kid on the field. I mean, today I'm five nine, 165 pounds. I'm still a pretty little guy, right? But you know, playing football with the the linemen in backyard football, you know, and I, you know, there's always the kid that gets hurt and goes home. I was always the kid that hurt the kid that got sent home. You know, even though I was the smallest guy on the field, I just they were always in awe. They were like, "Geez, man, this guy's unbreakable." You know, what are you doing? So you know being the best is what it was. And, you know, there was no doubt in my mind growing up as a kid, being on the army bases with Marines walking around doing security and other things, you know, a Marine walked down the, down the base, nothing against the army. They're great guys. I got lots of friends in the army. I have no, no issues with any branch of the service, but when a Marine walks down the street on the sidewalk, everybody else moves. And I was like, okay, that's the guy I'm going to be. So it was just, 
kind of sealed sealed the deal was yeah i gotta be the best so i'd have to go to the marine corps there's no other option <laughs> mm-hmm. was boot camp a shock for you did you uh no. have an easy time how was that no it, i mean it sucks don't get me wrong but you know the sand fleas and the mosquitoes were probably the worst part uh i was already in great shape like i said i was an athlete you know i lettered nine no i lettered 13 times in nine different sports um from my 10th 11th and 12th grade years so i mean i was in phenomenal shape when i went so the physical part wasn't that bad the mental part's another story um you know it taught me that mindset is everything and i already had a pretty good mindset going in um and i had friends that had graduated high school and gone into the marine corps and i had talked to them and kind of knew you know somewhat to what to expect um, mm-hmm. so it wasn't a total shock but I would say maybe exhausting more so than anything. It's the only time in my life I never had a problem going to sleep. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. We just automatically hit the rack and we're out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So what about after boot camp and, and then the next few years of your enlistment? Tell us a little bit where you where you went and, and uh, some experiences. Yeah, so uh, four years and six months. No, four years and eight months. Uh, so June 26, 95 to February 26, 2000. And, um, it was, it was a great experience. Um, I, I went from Paris Island to, uh, actually did 10 days recruiting duty, uh, with my recruiter at my hometown. And then I went to, um, Camp Geiger right there in Jacksonville outside of Camp Lejeune. And I did school of infantry, uh, 0311, uh, finished that. And then I went to, uh, Chesapeake, Virginia to do uh, security forces school, which is another six weeks or so. Um, graduated honor graduate there. Uh, got sent to Naval Air Station, North Island in Coronado, California, which uh, if those of you have never been to California, man, you need to go. <laughs> we couldn't have, couldn't have asked for a better first duty station. It was pretty awesome. You know, perfect weather, beautiful place, uh, beaches everywhere, you know, sunshine all the time. Uh, unfortunately, we were, you know, we were guarding special weapons and the facility's closed now. So uh, I, there are things that I, I'm not supposed to talk about, but I don't think there's a whole lot of danger in, you know, talking about a few things. So we were, we were guarding special weapons and um, crazy hours, you know, changeover at 3.30 in the morning. You know, you work three days, be off two days, work a weekend, be off two days, work four days, be off a weekend. And then the following week we'd go up to Camp, uh, Camp Pendleton and hump 94-94, you know, for six straight days before coming home on Sunday and having a, a day off and then start the rotation over again. So mm-hmm. crazy stuff, but a lot of fun. Um, got promoted to corporal pretty quickly. Um, I graduated corporal's course, honor graduate, left there with 4949 pros and cons. Went to 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines at Camp Lejeune. Um, well, I was supposed to go to Pendleton, but I went to my first sergeant, who I'd been with for a while, and, and I asked him, I said, you know, it'd really be nice if I could go to North Carolina, be at Lejeune, and be back home. That's where everybody I know is, and that's where the you know the big fleet is. That's what I wanted. If you're a grunt, you need to be in Camp Lejeune. And he agreed, and... He, he came, he came walking out about a week later and goes, Hey Floyd, come here. Um, I just want to let you know, I had to tell a little white lie to get you a camp Lejeune, but you're going, he said, I had to tell him that your dad and your granddad and your great granddad all served in eighth Marines 
So you had to serve there too. <laughs> so if anybody asked, that's the story. <laughs> so it was kind of cool. He pulled some strings for me to get me back to North Carolina. Uh, so I went to first time, second Marines. I was supposed to go to eighth Marines, had orders for eighth Marines. And I got there and of course they had changed. You know, I had like a 28 day leave because I hadn't had a single day of vacation in two years, you know, at that point. And um, went drove across country to give me 28 days to leave. It was like 14 days leave and 10 days travel or 15, 16, 18, whatever it was, 25, 28 days, somewhere in there total to travel and vacation too. So I got to come home and see the family and hang out and then go report for duty. And I literally got so out of my shell and in my comfort zone that as I'm walking in to the headquarters building at first time, second Marines, this sergeant, and I'm a corporal, the sergeant on the third deck, east wing, starts yelling, Hey, corporal. Hey. Yeah, I'm talking to you. And he says a lot more things than that, but I won't repeat them here. <laughs> but he just starts chewing my butt up and down and yelling at me, You better lock your body. Don't make me come down there. So I'm standing at attention. I haven't even thinking about it. I'm walking in, and my alpha's carrying a, a, a Coke. And drinking it while I'm walking down the street, which of course you don't do in uniform, you know, which sounds ridiculous. And I realized, oh yeah, I'm back at work. <laughs> I can't do this <laughs> At least you weren't wearing flip flops. Yeah, at least I wasn't right. But I checked in, and of course, um, I had four nine four nine pros and cons because I had just graduated uh, corporal's course a couple months before, and uh, <laughs> I go in and. The sergeant, ma- the sergeant major of the, uh, actually he was a first sergeant who had just been frocked, sergeant major. All right. So, and he happened to be headquarters uh, sergeant major. So not the company or not the battalion sergeant major, but the company sergeant major, which is, you don't have a company sergeant major, usually a first sergeant, but he was still there. He hadn't been reassigned yet. So here comes mm-hmm. this sergeant major, first person I meet face-to-face, and he takes my SRB out of my arms and starts reading it as we're walking down the hall, and he's asking me questions, and he's like, this is BS. And he throws the SRB on the ground. He says, nobody gets 494. What did you do to get that? I don't know. You know, I'm like, yeah, you're right, Sergeant Major. I don't deserve it. You know, the whole nine yards, of course, agreeing with him. And so, well, you know, it was a one-time thing. I was on a graduate, so I think my, you know, my platoon commander was trying to be nice and see me. To my new unit with a good recommendation. He's like, you know, and he's like kicking the SRB down the down the hallway as we're walking. Of course, I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. So they signed me to Charlie Company. Um, oh man, what was his name? Gunny. Uh, well, I can't remember his last name, but they told me to go report to Gunny at Charlie Company, and I'm standing in Charlie Company's office talking to the Gunny, and he's you know telling me I'm going to be the new platoon sergeant. Uh, for you know second platoon or whatever and uh sergeant major comes walking through the door hey gunny forget it he's mine and he it was gunny brown and gunny's like no he's not you know he's arguing with so he's like oh it's already done deal it's already signed he's come with me (laughs) so um i go with him he he puts me in charge of um the armory and i'm like what am I going to do with an armory this is you know i told him i said sorry he's like you want to work in armory for me i said no sergeant major i want to go to to my infantry and he goes wrong answer come with me you know like okay okay so he put sticks me in the army and that t- uh, turns out to be a pretty good deal because um i ended up going to solwick uh, i got promoted to sergeant about six months later i was a sergeant and just 
right at three years, um, which is pretty good in the infantry because you don't get promoted quite that fast because it's so overloaded, mm-hmm. uh, or at least it was back then. You know, your your composite scores were, were through the roof to get promoted, but uh, I was lucky enough to have all be in the right place at all the right times and have the right scores, and I got promoted to sergeant. Um, ended up in charge of this armory for the for the battalion, and I had a, a staff sergeant in there that was just old school and was never going to get promoted and didn't care about anything and was very unorganized, but the guy was a wizard when it came to working on weapons and just he could fix anything. And he and I became fast friends, and uh, hmm. I handled the business side, and he handled the mechanics, and it worked out well, and we did good. And I spent a lot of time on the range doing what I love. I mean, I was um, spent uh, right after, I hadn't thought about that, six months after I got to Naval Air Station North Island, they sent me to CQB school, so uh, close quarters battle. And so I was on the, the CQB team for about a year and a half, uh, which was, I loved, I, you know, you Two things that, and I told you this earlier, but two things that are always been natural to me. You know, a lot of things don't make sense to me, but you could put a computer in one hand and a gun in the other, and they've always, I could just play. You know, they made sense, so I was ready to go. So they put me on the CQB team. I actually went to, um, when I went through the course, I actually broke the record, uh, the shoot, the range record, um, from one of the instructors held it at the time, and he was all upset because I broke his record, but. I shot like a 396 out of a possible 400. You know, he was wow. Just, he was not happy. Um, I did hear that he broke it later with like a 398. So he, I'm sure he stayed on the range a lot in practice, but <laughs> it was funny. He was going to get you. I, you know, I was a Lance Corporal then and actually went through um, CQB with Lieutenant Colonel Beekman. Um, later he was, I don't know what he ended up as. If he, I, I know he got promoted to Colonel later. I don't know if he ever went further than that, but he was the security forces battalion commander and he lived in the barracks with us for six weeks while we went through CQB training. Talk about an experience. Um, You know, he had to turn a blind eye a lot of times so (laughs) he could have plausible deniability. (laughs) (laughs) But it was pretty cool. We had a, we had a blast, you know, it was, it was good times. Um, A lot of good, met a lot of good people, made a lot of good friends. Um, Deployed to Okinawa, deployed to um, uh, the Scotland. Really, I mean, we went all over the place for for years, and I mean, I think I ended up at like something like thirty six different countries in four and a half years, and all four Marine divisions at one time or another. Um, you know, the fourth one being the reserve, of course. When I got in, well, in the delayed entry, and then when I got out too, I was still on in active reserve. Um, when I got out, it was pretty tough. I had gotten married. I had uh, a, I, my last deployment was a month after my daughter was my first daughter was born, and I didn't see her for another six months. So, um, well, that's not true. I did see her. I, my stepdad passed away, so I came home for like three days um, from deployment to go to his funeral and be with my mom. So I got to see my wife and my kid then. For a couple of days and then I went back. My mom always said that was his last gift to me was to to come home and see my kid and my and my family. So that was nice. Um, but I just realized that you know what uh, I'd always you know to the day I got out, anybody you asked, they're like, oh yeah, man, he's a lifer. He's he's in it for for good. And when I told him I wasn't really listening, they everybody was like, what? 
what are you talking about? You know, you were made for this. This is you, man. This, what else are you going to do? You know, and I was like, I have no idea what else I'm going to do because I love this, but I can't be away from my kid. It's just, mm-hmm. that was a huge life-changing event was when I had my first kid because everything changes. You know, I went from the guy who was uh, not scared of anything and that growing up, people were like, man, he's crazy. What is he doing? He's riding his bicycle off the roof of the school, you know, because somebody dared him to, you know, or, oh, he jumped off the spillway, which is, you know, 65 feet tall, you know, concrete and slopes out. If you don't jump far enough, you hit the concrete on the way down. I'm like, you know, scared of nothing to scared of everything because now I have a kid and it's not, a, you know, now I have to be here because he's going to take mm-hmm. care of my kid if I'm not. And uh, right. that was a huge change for me. And it was, it really wasn't even a question. I mean, my next step in my career or the plan was to, um, to become a sniper. And uh, oddly enough, it's kind of funny because I would have been in the same sniper school as, um, oh, what's, as Chris Kyle, you know, the, you know, the most decorated and I don't know, accomplished sniper ever, I guess, and my, at least a U.S. sniper. You know, I would have been in his class had I gone and it, you know, I said, no, I'm done. I'm getting out. So don't send me, mm-hmm. send somebody else that that's going to keep it and use it. And, uh, it was tough, you know, cause I got out, I was a sergeant. I'd been a sergeant for well, a year and eight months, you know, 20 months. So instant recognition and instant, uh, obedience to orders. You know, you walk into a room, you have instant credit cause you're a sergeant, you know, you walk mm-hmm. into a room, uh, in an office building today without those stripes and in the civilian world and you're just Joe Boy walking down the street, right? That's a huge, huge change and was a pretty big shock to me. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was going to be that hard, but it was. Uh, It it was pretty difficult. And then um, I went to school, uh, started college, uh, went to work for my wife's family business, which was heating and air conditioning, uh, which I realized pretty early on, this is not what I wanted to do uh, for my, with my life was crawl under people's houses. So I uh, was doing, did residential heating there for about a year and a half, two years. And then we separated. Um, I finished school. I went to work for an electrician doing commercial work instead of residential work and quickly learned that, Hey, the commercial places where, where it's at, that's what I need to be in. And I just happened to be sitting uh, on the job site that I just finished wiring and running conduit and everything. And I was new and I knew nothing about electricity. And my boss had put me with his son, who was the foreman, to do this controls project. So we're pulling low voltage wiring and wiring up PLCs and all these you know things with lights and everything and machines that are out in a plant. And he shows up, the boss shows up on the last day and says, you know, well, where's Joey yet? You know, I'm like, I don't know, man, he didn't show up. He was known for doing that. He just didn't show up. If he didn't show up, you just went to work and did what you were supposed to do. So I did the job by myself. And he goes, man, the programmer's going to be here in an hour. This has got to be done. I said, it's done. You know, look at the prints. I'm, it's just like the prints. And he's like, you did it already? And I said, yeah. So the programmer walks in and he sets his laptop and opens it and plugs the cable in and hits enter. And the whole line just starts moving and doing its thing. And I was like, wow, that is awesome. And the boss looked at me and goes, you're my new controls guy. And I said, screw you. I want to do what he does. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, actually got an in, uh, an in at a company to carry your own, but was not carrier. So I could be under their umbrella and knowing that I was going to go to Charlotte and transfer 
to work for Carrier directly in their controls division. And that's how I got into doing film automation and energy management, which is what I do today. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I know that was a lot. (laughs) No, that's awesome. So when you're transitioning out of the Marine Corps, um, I I know it was kind of, you know, that your family was really pulling you and and helped you make that decision. But what did the Marine Corps do to help you transition? Did you go through a transition class? They teach you how to, you know, network, write a resume, stuff like that. Or what did that look like? I remember that very, very well. Um, And it was a gunnery sergeant teaching the class. I forget what it's called, but it's your exit you know, class, it's like a two day class or two, four hour days or something. It's eight hours total, I think. And it's amazing how vivid these memories are because I've been out for so long. <laughs> it's been 20, almost 22 years since I got out, you know, but, um, yeah, I remember this guy and here I am sergeant sitting in the class and, you know, most of the peers that are going through the class are like Lance corporals or privates that are getting out because they're, you know, been busted so many times they're not allowed to reenlist. And, um, the the gunny says, is there anybody in here that's solid qual? And I'm like, yeah, I'm solid qual. And he's like, you're solid qual? I was like, you know, yes, gunner sergeant, you know, I spent, you know, many, many <laughs> days on the range. And, you know, I said, I was CQB. He says, you're CQB and solid. What's your MOS? And I said, 0311. He's like, oh, my God, you got the trifecta. <laughs> so he wanted me to go to the FBI. And I told him, I just laughed. I said, no, I already looked at the FBI and did an interview with them and told them no, because they make you work more hours than the Marine Corps does. <laughs> <laughs> I said, and I'm trying to get out of that to go see my family. And he just started laughing. He's like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they did, they did do a lot of things. Uh, I was pretty fortunate in the fact that there was a family business to go home to because, uh, I mean, otherwise there wasn't much for me to do except go be a cop. You know, and that would have been mm-hmm. starting from ground zero again as a private, basically go through an academy if you get accepted, you know, and then, um, you know, the wait list is forever long. So it could have been a couple of years and then I would have been out of practice. And so, yeah, going into a trade was uh, was definitely the way to go for me, uh, particularly mm-hmm. because I didn't have the money to go to college. You know, uh, if I had a choice, I mean, I had the GI Bill, but it wasn't enough back then to pay for college by any means you know i ended up with an associate's degree that the gi bill paid for about 80 percent of and the rest of it i paid out of pocket so i could finish it um mm-hmm. otherwise i would have gone to a four-year school probably and and gotten a degree and gone from there um it mm-hmm. certainly would have made things easier you know i've had a great career i have no complaints uh, i mean i'm currently the an office of the president at a global manufacturer for control so i mean I'm a, technically I'm a co-president, so there's two of us that run the company, but we call it the office of the president. So, I mean, it is doable. You know, I don't have a four-year degree. I've got a two-year degree in industrial maintenance. Um, I've just been able to build a good career based on relationships and performance, you know, never quitting, never giving up, you know, doing what everybody else said, no, that's not possible. And I went, I'll do that, sure. And they were like, okay, yeah, whatever. And then, you know, the end result, I go, here you go. And they're like, that actually worked. (laughs) That was, that was amazing. So, you know, having God's little miracles in my life, um, have enabled me to go, go forward and do a lot of great things and help a lot of people. And I'm super grateful for that. And, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think if I had advice to give to anybody that was getting out today, it would be go to college. And if you can't afford college to learn a trade, because the trades are dismal right now with, um, 
with skilled people. We need skilled people in trades mm-hmm. badly right now. Um, mm-hmm. And do or do both. You know, be the gold collar guy that has a degree and field experience because those are non-existent too. They're just mm-hmm. they're so rare and so valuable. You just can't find them. You know, the guy that, yeah. that knows how to install them has hands-on experience that also has the degree and understands the business side of it is is the guy you want. Very, very hard to find. What were some of those intangibles that you took from the Marine Corps that made you so successful throughout your civilian life? Uh, well, probably the most obvious is just discipline. You know, I went in as a mm-hmm. 17-year-old kid with very little discipline other than what maybe some coaches had given to me or my mom or my dad had given to me. But, you know, any 17-year-old kid, boy or girl, doesn't matter. They're not very disciplined anyway. So I think that was probably the, the biggest thing. Structure gave me structure that I got used to and that I didn't always do well without. You know, and I think that um, building that foundation was important because that's one of the things that's made me successful is being able to implement structure and policies for uh, not only myself, but for the people around me to make them successful. Because um, I believe, highly believe in making you know making it possible for people to be successful, not just saying, here you go, go be successful. Now let's set them up to be successful instead of letting them figure it out, you know, throwing them in the deep end. So um, that's kind of what I've, I've built my basis of my career on is what do we got to do to be successful long term? You know, they gave me the strategy mm-hmm. thinking and the processes, you know. It used to be, you know, critical thinking and strategies used to be applied to, you know, anti-terrorism, right, or counterterrorism, and now it's just applied to business. There's no difference in how you do it or how you approach it. You know, the operation still the operation, the mission still the mission, and troop welfare is still priority number two always. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing is the structure that came from it. Mm-hmm. Um, that and and the brotherhood, I think. I tell my kids today, and I've got I got five kids. I got four daughters and one boy, and I tell them all, you know, you want to know the secret to life, and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, it's relationships, and I'm dead serious when I say it. It's like it's not money, it's not love, it's not um, anything that you can put your hands on or anything you can think of. It's absolutely most important thing in this world, and the secret to life and joy and happiness is having healthy relationships and helping other people, you know, because what having relationships does is get you out of yourself. And if you can get out of yourself mm-hmm. and into something else or somebody else and be focused on them and not focused on yourself, that's when the real success comes because you can't do it by yourself. Nobody can. It's impossible. I don't care what it is. Yeah. Okay. I can pick up, I can pick up this object with my hand by myself, but that's, like I said, it's not something that you can touch. A relationship and building those relationships and on healthy foundations and you know, genuine genuine love and respect. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Is Man, that's such a great lesson that you taught those your kids and and it's it's so important for, for veterans to remember that, right? I mean, yeah. you talked about being in that brotherhood and brotherhood sisterhood, and then now you go you leave the military and you're you're on an island. Yeah. And, you know, what was that like for you being with all your, you know, your, your buddies and then getting out and how, how did that, how did you handle that? It was terrible. <laughs> um, uh, absolutely terrible. And the timing couldn't have been worse because I got out right before nine eleven, And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I had, 
I call it, uh, or actually, I don't call it this. This is what the psychiatrist I went to called it. He said it was called uh, survivor's remorse. And I'm like, well, I'm not a survivor. I was, I, you know, I never went in combat. You know, I went all over the world on peacekeeping missions and helping, you know, rebuild stuff that we blew up 10 years before. But I never was, you know, in real combat for that. Um, so I don't, you know, I didn't consider that survivor's guilt. He said, well, the problem is, you, the problem was that I had Marines that I trained that got killed, you know, overseas mm -hmm. fighting a war. And I felt like I should have been there, you know, because I could have been. I could have very easily went and reenlisted and went back. It happened so quick after I got out. It was less than a year. Um, and the only reason I didn't get stopped, lost, and recalled was because I had that year uh, in the delayed entry program. So I missed a cutoff day, or I think I might have actually been stopped, lost for like a day or two. And then it expired mm -hmm. at the end of the month or something. So, I mean, it was so, so close that I could have very easily just went back and said, hey, send me back the one, two. I want to go back and I'm deploying it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't because I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't have, you know, the kids. I wouldn't have impacted the people that I've impacted. I wouldn't be working with other veterans right now. I would be sitting here talking to you. And, uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think God had a plan for me other than that. Uh, but it was really hard because first Italian, second Marines was the spearhead of the first uh, the first infiltration after nine eleven hit. You know when we attacked back and retaliated, they were the spearhead. Uh, literally, ninety six out of the first hundred and ten coalition troops that were killed. That's coalition, so we're talking Great Britain and U.S. because nobody else had joined at that point. So out of all the U.S. and the British troops, one hundred and ten that were killed in the first whatever ninety days. 96 of those guys came from 1st Italian 2nd Marines. They were Marines that I mm -hmm. trained, that I worked with on a day-to-day -day basis, that I was side-by-side -side with. So for them to not come home was really, really hard. Uh, and mm -hmm. nobody understood that. You know, that, and nobody other than other Marines or, you know, the ones that I kept in touch with and we're still talking to. And I had a warrant officer, warrant officer Short, who was uh, such a great, great leader, uh, just an amazing person. And I kept in touch with him and he kept tabs and let me know what was going on and, you know, who would, who had gone and who was coming home and tried to go see people that friends that we came home that were injured, but, you know, still here. And yeah, it was tough mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, they were doing their job and I wasn't. So, um, I had some struggles with that and, uh, I'd, I'd lie if I said it didn't attribute to, you know, uh, issues with my personal relationships for many years after that. And uh, eventually, you know, I don't have any crazy sob story by any means, but I did become an alcoholic and, um, you know, I was broken for many, many, many years and, uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons, but that I think was a big part of it too, because I was feeling guilty for not being there. Um, mm -hmm. and I just kind of went from one thing to another. I immersed myself in my job. Then I immersed myself in school, then I immersed myself in my job, and then I immersed myself in making money, and nothing ever filled that void, and then alcohol did. And, mm -hmm. and it did for many years until it didn't, and it finally, everything around me just fell off because it was a, a terrible foundation. I hadn't built the good, healthy relationships that I'm talking about today that I teach my kids to build. I was, you know, very selfish. You know, self-pity still begins with self, right? It's one of the most selfish places you can live. Because it's about mm -hmm. me. And I'm of no use to anybody if all I'm doing is thinking about me. And that's a terrible place to be, too, because um, it's miserable. 
you know, there's no joy in it. There's there's no joy because there's no gratification. There's no humility, and without humility, you can't have gratification. It just doesn't exist. Um, and gratitude is, you know, in my mind, it's the spark of all joy. Without it, you can't be happy. So you, you got to start somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it led me down a long, narrow path that was, you know, self self chosen and self seeking. Um, my intentions were always good, but they were always still selfish motives. That was what it all boiled down to. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't know, almost three, four years in February, I got sober and um, cleaned up my act. And, right on. you know, I've been sober, haven't had any relapses. I haven't even had the urge to drink, no desire whatsoever. God has removed it from me. And I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to help others and trying to stay focused on everybody but me. I've got a good buddy that says, um, move a muscle, change a thought. And I love that saying because it's so true because I can feel myself going into that self-pity sometimes and that kind of downward slope. And all I have to do is get up and go do something with somebody else. You know, I can get up. It can be as simple as going and emptying a dishwasher for my wife, you know, or it could be as great as driving down, you know, 20 miles or 30 miles or wherever to find a vet who's uh, struggling with addiction and, taking him down to a rehab facility to get him checked into a treatment. You know, it just, um, move muscle, change of thought. It, it, I, it sounds like the simplest, craziest thing, but it works and I love it. And I try to use it today. And I hope, you know, others out there do, because I tell you the hardest thing in the last four years of sobriety has not been not drinking. It's been, uh, losing more of my brothers. Cause I've lost two in the last four years to suicide that have had mm-hmm. PTSD. And these are guys that I served with. Okay, that that carried on and and went to battle and went to war and came home after 20 years, you know, of of being in it constantly, you know, five, six deployments kind of deal. Uh, One of them was a sergeant major of the battalion. I mean, that's how how high up it goes. It doesn't mental illness does not. um, What's the word I'm looking for? It, it doesn't care who you are, what your rank was, how much money you have. It does not care. It will grab hold of you and, and it will end you if, if you let it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's terrible, mm-hmm. you know, because these were great guys that I known for years, you know, 20 plus years, 25 years. I knew these mm-hmm. two Marines that committed suicide over the last four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were motivators. You know, I've got a good buddy that he was a staff, the Sergeant Major was a staff sergeant when I knew him. He was the head of a, a state platoon and, you know, sniper. The guy was awesome. I spent hours and hours and hours and you know months with this guy in the field at ranges and you know humping mountains and doing all kinds of stuff and on deployments you know he had my back and i had his back he was a great guy and i've got a buddy that i went to high school with that talks about him when he was a sergeant major you know he spent 18 years in or no he just he made 20 because he just retired this year or last year maybe i don't know something like that but he put 20 years in, retired as a gunny, and he talks about Sergeant Major, you know, and I'm like, I keep laughing. He's not a Sergeant Major, he's a staff sergeant. <laughs> he's like, no, man, this is 15 years after you, you know? So I'm like, yeah, I know, I'm just laughing. But uh, he talks about Sergeant Major being up on top of Connex boxes, walking, jumping between the boxes with the entire battalion, just in a big horseshoe around him, listening to him, and he's giving them a speech about to go to war. You know, and they're, mm-hmm. they're in Kuwait or Iraq or Saudi Arabia, I don't, I don't know where they were, but they were overseas, you know, about to go in live live fire, and he's on top of it, giving them a speech, telling them what great men they are and how they're going to succeed. And 
you know, this guy comes home and he can't deal with it and nobody knows because that's what mental illness does to you. It, it isolates you. It, it puts you in self and that's a terrible place to be for anybody. Um, especially mm-hmm. somebody who's dealing with PTSD because ultimately you had a wife and kids and, uh, hundred thousand brothers, you know, that were still alive that knew him and served with him. Maybe more than that, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands if you go over years and years of, that he's that he spent in the service and he could have reached out and asked for help and any one of us would have been there for him but he didn't feel comfortable enough to do that and that's a shame because um mm-hmm. he's a great guy you know all i can say today is you know maybe we can use his example to help others because uh, i think that's what he would have wanted i think he would have wanted help he just didn't know how to ask for it and, you know mm-hmm. it's okay to ask for help you know it, it takes a village it's it's not a one-man show you know the snipers out there in the world guess what they don't go out by themselves. There's always two. There's always at least two. Those are the deadliest guys in the world, and there's two of them. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to do anything by mm-hmm. yourself. And if I could send any message to veterans today, I think it's that that you're not alone. You know, just because mm-hmm. your mind says you should be isolated and you don't feel comfortable, and hey, guess what? There's a hundred more guys probably within a, a hundred mile radius of you that have the same problem and the same thoughts. It's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And there's nothing wrong with asking for help. I did it. I got help and I live a wonderful life today. I'm the happiest I've mm-hmm. ever been. I'm in the best physical shape I've been since I was in the Marine Corps. And uh, I'm yeah, happy, joyous, and free. And I have a wonderful family to show for it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. so what do you think it is that makes us feel so secluded that we don't want to just pick up a phone and call our buddy or we don't want to ask for help? Is it because we're afraid of what others will think of it. What, what are your thoughts on that? My personal experience is it's admitting defeat and that's not bred in us. <laughs> it's not bred in any branch of the service. It's not bred in humankind, especially, especially the, our society, you know, in the U S failure is not an option. It's just something that is not acceptable or it hasn't been acceptable in the past. Um, and, and that's, you know, step one to fix any problem is admitting there is one, right? If, if right. we can make that step, then we can then we can fix it. We can find a solution to it. But it's just so hard to make that step and actually admit that, yes, there's a problem. You know, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. No, you're not. It's okay. It's okay to say I'm not okay. It's, it's not a failure. Mm-hmm. It's a failure if you don't ask for help. Because ultimately, whether you survive it or not, it's going to be done way less efficient, way, way less, uh, productive. And is then if you ask for help, because what you end up with is again in self and nobody, nobody needs to be alone. Nobody really truly wants to be alone. I don't believe, um, the ones that tell you that are lying because, you know, they, they think they can do it all. Either ego says I'm too big to ask for help or self pity says, um, if I ask for it, I'm a failure. You know, that's the two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You know, I call it getting back to par. I want to get back to par because if I stay at par, I'm okay because it means I'm focused on somebody else and I'm helping somebody else and I'm getting help when I need help. If I'm if I'm above par, then I'm in my ego and I'm pride and I'm not asking for help and I'm not helping anybody because I'm too good for that. If I'm below par, then I'm in self-pity and ego once again, just, you know, pride in reverse. And I'm of, use, of no use to anybody because what I'm probably doing in that scenario is dragging people now, trying to make them feel pity with me. Yeah. Misery loves company, right? Mm-hmm. 
Right. So, right. Yeah, I call it stated par. That's where I try to live at, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't keep it there all the time, but that's where I try to stay at if at all possible. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that what you said, you know, move a muscle, change a thought, and it's that's so true, and it's we can just get stuck in that, you know being right side or left side yeah. and just get stuck. And then it's like, you just have to move. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, I heard it phrased this way. It's, you got to get off the X, right? Yeah. Bombs are coming right that's on the right. X. And if you don't move <laughs> and you just one step and, um, man, that's so awesome. Move a muscle, change, change a thought. That's, that's great. That's awesome. So, so now are you involved with other veterans groups or, What's your connection to the community and the veterans? Uh, honestly, it's mostly through uh, 12-step programs and people in addiction because that's where my uh, my expertise lies since I have experience with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I work with lots of uh, lots of different people in, in programs that are, uh, you know, for drugs or for alcohol or for whatever. And a lot of guys have PTSD and you know, when you're in a 12-step program, you're supposed to have a sponsor, and it's hard to sponsor somebody with PTSD if you don't at least have some kind of understanding of what they went through. Um, mm-hmm. I've been diagnosed diagnosed with PTSD twice and told them that's BS. You can leave that out of my record book. Don't ever write it down. Um, but mm-hmm. physically to my face, been told, yes, you have PTSD. I'm like, no, I don't. I'm like, yes, you do. I'm like, no, I don't. You know, it can, it can manifest in many ways. A car wreck can give you PTSD, you know. The loss of mm-hmm. a loved one here, you know, not in battle can, can be, uh, can give somebody PTSD. So, uh, a traumatic event is basically what it is. And if I had to go back and look at it and say, have I been through traumatic events in my life? Absolutely. I've been through several, um, in my life. And, you know, that's okay. Um, because it's given me the strength and, and the experience to deal with, um, you know, veterans that are having the same issues right now. So. Yeah, I, I do work with them. I sponsor uh, several vets. Matter of fact, I think all of my sponsors right now, except for one, is a, is a vet. Um, I've got a new guy right now that I'm not. He hasn't actually asked me to be a sponsor, but I'm the only person I've talked to um, right now. I've, I've had several guys that I've sponsored, and some of them that I've actually turned over to other vets because they have more similar experiences and can understand it better. I say, hey, man, I'm not a good fit. You need to go talk to this guy. So we have a really good community here in North Carolina of vets and um, uh, I have yet to find anybody that has spent time in the service that isn't willing to step up and help because the brotherhood is so strong, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it's just a different, it's a different thing. You know, when I've got friends that I've known my whole life, you know, I got my best friend since I was six years old, I call him my brother and I introduce him as my brother. Um, and I have a wonderful relationship with him. You know, he, he is my brother. I, I die for him in a heartbeat and he, you know, he can finish my sentences before, before I can, you know, but it's a different, it's a different feeling, a different relationship when I'm standing with my, my Marine buddy, uh, and I, BJ Russ is one of my closest friends and one of my oldest friends. He lives here with me. He spent, he was in Tutu. He was in California with me and, uh, he was from North Carolina, mountains of North Carolina. We never met each other. We probably played each other in high school sports at some point because we were the same age and graduated the same year. We both ended up at Coronado and spent two years together there. And then we both ended up at Second Marines in Camp Lejeune, right across the quad from each other. And now our kids play together. And my wife is 
actually taught both of his kids and you know he's my oldest and dearest friend and closest friend as far as anybody that I keep up with um, on a regular mm-hmm. basis and the the fellowship and the brotherhood that I have with him because he was willing to stand beside me and say hey, I'm going to take a bullet for you will you take one for me and I was able to say the same to him it's just different mm-hmm. I don't know how to explain it but it's different uh, it's not something I've experienced mm-hmm. anywhere else in, in the world and in my life and all the things that I've done and um, it's amazing because there's never been a time where I've called any one of those guys and said, I need help that they've said that they haven't said I'm on my way, you know, not all right, man. Yeah. Uh, can I be there Tuesday? No, it's I'm on my way I'm coming right now. Mm-hmm. I'll meet you here. You know, so it's just a different, a different thing. When they say it's a brotherhood, I don't really think it does justice because I don't think you can put a word to it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. It's that it's that instant trust. It's the knowing that that person's gonna be behind you no matter what. Like you said, take a bullet. And it's it's really interesting, you know, going through boot camp and and through the the Marine Corps. And I can only speak to the Marine Corps is going through that training, that shared misery, right? <laughs> but you know, without a doubt, that guy or that gal is gonna is gonna give their life for you, you know? And it's, I, I've talked to so many vets um, and it, and that is more common that I've heard in the Marine Corps than any other service. It, it might be because we're the smallest service uh, and the way we're trained and, and the mentality that we have, but um, yeah, it's, 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 you can't really describe what that's like. And and I know that like the worst 10% of the Marine Corps, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, those, that 10% is still head and shoulders above yeah. a lot of the others, right? Yeah. And I know that if I see a, a, another person with a Marine Corps hat on or a, an emblem on their car, I know. Yeah. Like I don't have to worry about it, you know? And it's, it's, it's hard to put that into words and describe it. So, Yeah, I wouldn't have done this interview until I saw you were a Marine and I was like, oh, okay, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. I, I have a, another good buddy who, um, he just doesn't like people, yeah. you know, and, um, he, uh, he, he's in kind of close to me, uh, where I live. And I saw the, the EGA on his, on his car. And I saw, I just went up, started talking to him and he's like, Oh, you're a Marine. And then, you know, just became good friends. And it's just so funny. He's like, I don't trust anybody. I don't like to talk to anybody <laughs> unless yeah, they're a Marine. Yeah. So yeah. They they get me so yeah yeah I meet them all the time it's great I was I uh, coached my daughter's one of my daughter's soccer teams and I was at a game two nights ago and the coach on the opposing side you know they're always you know they're always nice and respectful but you know nobody no coach ever wants to talk to the other coach and I'm of course the guy that talks to everybody so I'm always trying to strike up conversations with the other coaches and they're like why is this guy talking to me leave me alone. And so we're leaving the game and we just finished and I rolled down the window because I saw him walking in the parking lot. I said, Hey coach, good game, man. That was great. That was a lot of fun. And he's like, you know, looking like, who is this guy? And then he sees my Marine Corps license plate. And he goes, you're Marine. I was like, yeah, he goes, me too. And we were instant, you know, stood there and talked for yep. another 45 minutes. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's the instant credibility I was talking about before that you just don't get anywhere else. But you mm-hmm. still get it, and mm-hmm. you know, when you meet another Marine, it's instant credibility. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, this guy's—he's yeah. okay, or this guy's—he's all right. Yeah, 
And you put your experience with, you know, not only the Marine Corps experience, but your life experience with addiction and, and being able to be there now for those, those young veterans and, and Marines uh, or old, right. Sure. That are, that are dealing with that. And, I, and you're just in the perfect place. And I, it, it's such an awesome gift to be able to do that, to touch their heart and to, you know, just, just to be there and listen. Right. Yeah. It's been a blessing, truly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know how to explain it, but to say that, you know, God led me here and I'm glad he did because um, I'm in a really good place um, to be able to help somebody else and then look back at my life, you know, 15, 20 years ago and be like, what was I doing? You know, but, mm-hmm. you know, God has a plan always. So we just don't always know what it is until we get there, right? That's right. <laughs> Matter That's of fact, right. my buddy I was telling you about before, what did he text me? I texted him this morning and said, uh, to tell him happy birthday. And this is, this is what he wrote back. He says, uh, Oh, what do you say? Yeah. He said, uh, uh, thank you, sir. I hope that everything is going great your way. And I texted back. I said, it's going, it's going the way God intended, whether or not I think it's great is yet to be determined. Hope you are are doing better or doing great brother. And he responds the way God intended indeed is the only way I'd want it to be. So yeah, very true. it's, it's out of our hands, you know, yeah. and it's, a, when I finally let go of control and quit trying to manipulate everything in my life, the world got a whole lot happier, uh, in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what are some parting shots and advice that you would have for the, the young veterans out there, uh, or even getting ready to become a veteran or their families? What is, what's that advice you have for them? So people who are getting ready to go in, um, I think I would just say, number one, thank you, because it's not for everybody. And for those that are not going, not to worry about it, because there's plenty of us out there that are, that'll handle them that you need to go handle what God puts you on earth for. Um, but the ones that are getting ready to go, I think I would tell them to enjoy it. Um, probably the biggest the biggest regret I have, and I don't really have any regrets. I mean, but if I had to pick one thing, I would say that uh, I just took myself too seriously too long and mm-hmm. enjoy where, enjoy that, you know, fourth dimension, enjoy being in the moment because they go quick. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I tell I tell my kids every time they leave the house and, and I've got, they're all grown, but one, I've got a 20, 21, 22, 20, you know, 30 now and a nine-year-old. So I got my nine-year-old at home. Everybody else is gone and graduate. I just had one graduate college. I got another one that graduates college in December and then another one graduates next May. Um, it's crazy, but I always still tell them the same thing. I say, you know, make good memories, make good decisions and come home safe. And I think I would tell that mm-hmm. to anybody that's getting ready to go into service too. Is make good memories, mm-hmm. make good decisions and come home safe. Awesome. Awesome advice, Jack. I, I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, you've, you've got a lot of, a lot of wisdom <laughs> and a lot of, yeah. uh, you know, a huge heart to be able to help. I appreciate you know, that. Your brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 again, I appreciate your time. Um, I, I'm going to take that, move a muscle, change a thought. 
That's that's amazing. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, put it on a T-shirt, put it on a because it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I can't claim yeah. it. A buddy of mine tells it to me all the time, and I love it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a great, great advice. Love it. Great advice. Well, thanks so much for being here tonight. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for doing uh, it. I think what you're doing is an amazing thing, and I, uh, I wish you all the best in doing it. And just keep reaching out because uh, uh, what a gap there is, as you started talking in the beginning, that there's an information gap there, and there absolutely is. So good for you for trying mm-hmm. to fill it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, simple fry, simplify, brother. I appreciate simplify. it. Thank you. All right. Take care.